Happy New Year and uh, good afternoon, Walla Walla. Okay, how's your New Year going? Let me tell you about mine. Let me tell you about mine. Yesterday, my wife was, this is not part of the sermon. I'm just talking to you right now. My wife was doing my daughter's hair and uh, she had PBS on. PBS is good, right? You know, you have a six-year-old, you put PBS on. She's doing her hair, she's taking each row, she's braiding it, beautiful. But of course you have to keep the attention of the child because it takes a while. Goes to PBS, looks through the channels and sees a really interesting program that my daughter wants to watch. It's called Killer Volcanoes. She finishes, oh, I see a face here. Eyes wide open, finishes watching Killer Volcanoes. And you know how Netflix gives you nine seconds to make a choice, the next one comes up and it's Killer Hurricanes. All right, now if you're a parent, you see where I'm going with this because yesterday I think we had 25 mile an hour Chinook winds while we were sleeping. And so at two in the morning, we hear a at our door, open the door, yes. I'm scared. Why are you scared? Do we have volcanoes in Walla Walla? No, we don't have volcanoes. 4 a.m. Knock on the door. What's wrong? I'm scared. Why? Do we have earthquakes in Walla Walla? No, we don't. I kid you not. 5 a.m., another knock. This time she wants, she wants to know, just for her dolls, not for herself, if Walla Walla gets hurricanes. So why am I sharing that with you? This is how my new year has started. Be careful what you let your kids watch on, even PBS. <laughs> okay, join with me as we pray and we come to God's word. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the life that you've given to us so that we can gather together as a community of faith. We are grateful for the worship which has taken place. We are grateful for the opportunity to encounter you. We ask that your Holy Spirit will blow through this place like a Chinook, that you will leave us having been touched and transformed by the renewing of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was born in Ghana in West Africa and moved to England when I was seven to join my dad who was studying theology at Newbold College. When I moved from Ghana to England, I had to deal with the fact that for many years I had an identity which I can now describe as having existed in a liminal space in the sense that it was suspended in the void between Ghana and England. This was a this was a conversation I would often have with myself and would often find myself struggling to answer the question of where are you from when I was asked by other people. Forms in England would gently guide me to a designation of being an Afro-Caribbean when I would have to make such decisions. And then one day in 2003, I went to Dallas Airport um, in Baltimore and I came face to face with the full weight of the U.S. government who decided they could speak into this, uh, I guess, small existential crisis I was having around my identity. I remember coming off the British Airway flight and following a river of people towards customs. And then there was a fork in the river as people went to the left and to the right. To the left was a sign uh, which 
said you should come here if you're a US citizen or if you are a permanent resident. To the right was another sign and it said you should come here and it had different designations. I cannot remember all of them, but the one I do remember was a five letter word which said alien. This is 2003. Now, I'd never been to America, I was about 18 years old, but I did know that the American government did not play practical jokes or pranks, but it seemed this word suggested someone was having a laugh. And so in my confusion, I called someone in the airport who looked like someone pretty official. I said, excuse me, um, which line do I go to? She said to me, what passport do you have? So I pulled out of my pocket a burgundy British passport and I showed it to her and she looked at it and she looked me dead in the eyes and said, oh, you're an alien, go in that line. <laughs> and that day, the American government solved for me a problem which I had been dealing with for many years and I realized that indeed I was an alien. And there are some of you who can trace back your lineage and know grandparents who came to Ellis Island, grandparents who came to other ports in the States, and who coming from Germany or Sweden or Norway or Tanzania or Brazil or Argentina came and realized they had been given an identity and that identity was, according to the US government, alien. Now this word is interesting, it comes from a Middle English word which comes from an older French word which comes from a Latin word alienus, meaning belonging to another. And I think it's a clumsy attempt to really give a sense of identity through the relative as opposed to the absolute differences that we have based on where we come from. There are other ways that we can think about identity. We can think about identity as being one which is a psychological identity, racial identity, sociological identity, national gender identity, religious identity, so on and so forth. There are a plethora of ways that we might look at who we are and identify ourselves in relation with other people. If we were to take, for example, Einstein's illustration where he says that if a fish is in a tree, it's going to essentially have a very terrible and short life. Um, or if we think about the fact that if a car thought it was a plane, it would have a horrible time once it hits the runway. We can come to this small truth about identity, which is this, that our identity informs our mission. Once we know who we are, it usually will give us some idea about what we ought to do. And in the days following Christmas as a bridge, we still have our Christmas trees here. We have our Pax banner. We sang once in Royal David City following uh, the liturgical calendar that this is actually part of the Christmas season and of the Advent season. I wonder how we can think about our identity launching into a new year. I wonder how Jesus Christ can speak to us as we go into a new year. And following Christmas, for many of us, the mood is like the lights that we've unplugged and we've hastily bundled back into a basement or an attic and we're gonna take three hours to untangle it again in December. 
and life comes to a, a slower rhythm. Nine to five comes back into our life. School starts again, and we're grateful for all the students who have come back. I see some here. I see some in the lobby that you came back safely by the grace of God. We are glad that you are back uh, with us in this community, but how do you re-engage life after the ending of the festive season? And this is the question we're going to look at for the next few weeks, starting today. How do we live our life after Advent? How do we live into a new year? How do we live when we're on the cusp of a new beginning for our lives, individually and also as a community? Now, when I think about the Advent story, I think about a significant moment which happens after once in Royal David City, after the lowly cattle uh, shed, we find Jesus Christ being taken to the temple to be dedicated. And then after, when you look at the book of Matthew chapter two, another significant moment happens that I want to think about a little with you this morning. And it's this moment in Matthew chapter two when uh, Herod, with his megalomanic, murderous machinations, says he's going to murder every child under the age of two. And so Mary and Joseph, like any parent, think, well, that's not very nice. Well, they think more than that. I'm being facetious. But they take their child and they go where? To Egypt. So they take baby Jesus in the infancy of his life, and because they are being threatened, they go to Egypt to find safe passage. And so what we find is that for a time, Jesus Christ actually adopts and becomes and takes on this identity as an alien. And Jesus Christ experiences this temporal marginality. There is all of this, and then Jesus Christ has to be on the edge of it, on the margins, temporarily, so that his life can be saved. And then Jesus Christ lives a life where he has not just temporal marginality, but he has long-term social otherness that consistently informs his mission. He's always different to everyone else. He's in the mix, but he's different. And I wonder how this might give us some idea or a way in which to move into this new year. Now we're going to go to the book of Hebrews uh, for the main part of this sermon, and you find the author of Hebrews has some interesting things to say. And I will consistently say the author of Hebrews because scholars are not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. I mean, some people are very sure, others are not sure. Uh, my recommendation is if you are unsure and you want to know a definitive answer, a categorically definitive answer, you can go to Dr. Carl Kozart, who is the dean of the theology department. He was here in the first service. I don't know if he gave me permission to say this, but I'm sure he will be more than willing to give you a definitive answer about who wrote the book of Hebrews. So this author in Hebrews, especially in Hebrews chapter 11, where we'll be focusing this afternoon, finishes by recalling in brief the faithfulness of a long line of Jewish forebears who are recorded both in the Old Testament and in intertestamental text. This for most of us would be known as the hall of faith, the people who are faithful to God in their life. And this uh, 
This text is interesting to me because it speaks a little about this idea of identity, of otherness, of marginality, and of being an alien. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 13, this is what you read. So the author says, these all died in faith, and we'll come to who these are in a moment, but these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And this first word translated strangers is the Greek word xenoi, from which we derive the term xenophobia. And it describes people who understand in some way, who are understood in some way to be completely different from the majority. They are other. And the second word, which is used describing these strangers and, and these people who moved, is parapedomai. And it's translated as foreigners, not just any kind of foreigners, but those who take up residence in another land. They could be sojourners, they could be refugees. There are a number of synonyms you might use for this word. But again, they are aliens, they are other. And so don't miss this. The author in Hebrews chapter 11 is saying all of the faithful people in the Old Testament, in the intertestamental period, in the New Testament, all of these faithful people are described as having an identity that is other. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David, every single one of these come under the category of being both a stranger and also being an alien. Their lives were lived and understood by being and living and existing on the margins. And sometimes they even lived lives where they saw themselves as existing beyond the boundaries of earth. Now, it's interesting, again, because when you read the stories, uh, these people were not just hermits. They were not aesthetic people who lived in the desert, knew no one else, and just wanted to be weird. That was not their lives. I'm sure all of these people in the Hall of Faith would have had some sense of location and permanence in their life physically. If you needed to write a letter to them, they could have given you an address. If they needed to fill out a form to get a driver's license, they would have had an address. If they needed to invite you over for Friday night supper, they could have directed you. If they needed to get something from Amazon two-day prime, they would have had an address to put in. So that is not the point of the text in the sense that they are alien and other. It's deeper. But what you do find with all of these people in Hebrews chapter 11 is that they understand that their physical location did not transcend their primary calling. And so in that sense, they take on an identity as being alien, as being other, as being sojourners, even though they are living on earth. And this is interesting to me, especially when we look at the life of Abraham. Now, he lived a life of marginality, even though Abraham was extraordinarily wealthy. I mean, by any standards, Abraham would have been that guy who could certainly make it rain. And yet, he consistently lives a life where he is seen and where he self-identifies as being on the margins. In fact, Genesis 23 tells us that he had to negotiate with the sons of Heth to even have a burial place for his wife, Sarah. 
Abraham's identity as a sojourner informed his mission or his calling to go and to follow God. Hebrews 11:9 puts it this way about Abraham. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundation, whose architect and builder is God. If you've never read about Abraham, you know nothing about Abraham, you are in here because you are in town and you're visiting relatives who have dragged you to church. Let me tell you who Abraham is. He was an ancient person in the Bible and we are introduced to him when he is 75 years old and he's in the land of Haran. God says, Abraham, come, I have something special for you to do. And Abraham says, what? He's like, don't worry, just go, trust me, you'll be fine. And Abraham goes. And then he wanders for a hundred years. He lives his life with the primary identity of being a wanderer and of a sojourner. And then at the age of 175, we are told that he dies. For those who have grown up, we know with the Bible, we understand that Abraham is a luminous star in the night sky of characters in the Bible. And he understood that God had given him this privilege of fulfilling the covenantal promise. What does that mean? It means being part of God's activity to reconcile the earth, to bridge the gap which has come as a, as a consequence of there being broken relationship between God and humanity. God says, Abraham, it's you. I'm gonna use you, you're gonna go forward. You're gonna, you're gonna be, Abraham would have been the influencer. He would have been the one who would have had the page that would have had the hashtag that would have pointed people to God. God said, you're gonna be my influencer, Abraham, so that I can tell, so that you can tell other people about me. And yet Abraham, even though he was part of a sacred work and participated in salvation with God, he did not live a perfect life. His life was full of mistakes, missteps. He messed up. He disobeyed God, and God chose Abraham. And what you find over and over in the book of Genesis is that Abraham lived his life with the posture of being a sojourner, of being a wanderer. That was Abraham. This was the posture and the identity he took. He did not let his physical location transcend his primary calling. In Genesis 12 and 13, you find uh, a few instances where Abraham, uh, living his life with God, following God, would come to places where, uh, to use a term, where heaven would be thin and where he would feel the presence of God and have an experience with God. And so Abraham would build altars in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 13. And he would have these altars built because he recognized that the presence of God had been there. And it's interesting, again, for me, when I think about this identity of being a sojourner and what it might mean, I think one of, the, one of the things it also means for us is that as we look into the new year, the journey is going to be much more important than any destination. Abraham had no destination that he was going to, but he recognized that the journey he was on with God, even though he did not have all of the answers, was a journey where he had the opportunity to recognize the movement of God. Uh, you know, this happened right in between 
just before Sabbath school, as often happens, service is done, having a conversation with someone, reflecting on the sermon and reflecting on what this new year might mean. And this person says, you know, I, I've come to a stage in my life, maybe it's because of the age that I'm about to um, um, enter into this year, where I'm wondering if I'm sliding from a sense of certitude into more abstraction, into more mystery, maybe even into, into agnosticism. I said, interesting, tell me more. And he recounts experiences in his life that have happened in the last year or two where he has had to question the certainty he had and the destination that he had and the vehicle that he thought he was in to get to that destination. But he recognized that in the journey, God is walking with him and God is helping him to recognize the moment where he is alive and where he is present. Being an alien and a sojourner is not an easy thing. This week, I was reminded of another person who going through this difficult time uh, of, of being a, a sojourner, being on the margins of society has to deal with the difficulty that attends this identity. I think about a group of people, our brothers and sisters, who have suffered perpetual reproach and violence simply because of their identity, simply because of who they have followed. You know, uh, Hanukkah is an eight-day wintertime festival. And it's a festival which is an interesting one because it is a festival of light which remembers a time when for Jewish people, uh, they were under Seleucid reign and a small band of underarmed, faithful, dedicated, zealous people were able to fight back an empire. They fought it back, reclaimed the temple, went into the temple and they saw the menorah, this eight branch candlestick burning. And for them, it's important that the lights always burn to show the presence is still there. But they only had one cruise of olive oil left to be able to go and keep the candles burning. And the story goes that although they only had one cruise of olive oil, it lasted for eight days. And so the sages and the rabbis said, we must commemorate this. We must have a festival where we remember God's goodness to us during these times. And so on December 29th in New York, a group of people were packed in a rabbi's house celebrating Hanukkah, celebrating this festival of light, celebrating that although they are aliens and sojourners, they still have God with them. They had just finished having this time together, celebrating, eating good food, sharing stories, participating in ritual. When the story is told that uh, a person comes into the rabbi's house as people are filtering out into a nearby synagogue. He comes in, he has a mask on, he closes the door. He says, nobody is going anywhere. He unsheaths a sword that witnesses say is about the size of a broomstick. And then he starts blindly, indiscriminately hacking and slashing everyone who is in the doorway and then in the living room and then in the kitchen, children and elderly people. There is panic as people try to exit through the back door and a few courageous people tackle this um, intruder and they are able to, um, excuse me, they don't tackle him, they tackle him and they're able to stop what he's doing but he gets away, he goes in his car and he drives off leaving a traumatized 
traumatized community behind. Living as marginalized people. The following Sunday, in the shock of this brazen and hateful attack, a hundred of these Hasidic Jews came together and they danced, they mourned, they sang, and they processed to the site of the attack. And Rabbi Yossi Fried shepherded a group of school children who were holding oil torches as the rain fell down. And a journalist went to the rabbi and said, what does this all mean? How, how do you even see yourself in a moment like this? And the rabbi turns to the journalist and he says that his message was this, it has been tough, but in the Jewish religion, we are always taught that there is light even among the darkness. So I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what an absolute travesty. I contact some of you here in this community. I'm able to get details for our own community here. Our own community of people who have for thousands of years lived this marginalized and alien life. And I contact them. I, I'm in contact with one of the people from the synagogue. They come, they sit, and I say, what would you tell this congregation if you had the opportunity, even though you are in Walla Walla and this happened in New York, what would you have us know about this heinous act of violence? And he said, well, um, I will tell you that if you live in a place and there is anti-Semitism, if there's bigotry, if there's racism, you ought to stand up, you ought to say something. You ought to be part of those people who repudiate acts of hatred and violence. And as he spoke, and I remember the words of this rabbi, I went back to the very first sermon we preached in Advent at the beginning of December, where we looked at this Isianic call in Isaiah chapter 9, this idea that there are people living in darkness, but when Christ comes, the light begins to dawn. When Christ comes, hope begins to be injected into the world. And when you are living with this identity of marginality, when you're living with this identity of being othered, of being alien, it's important that you recognize that it may feel isolating, but God is still present and dawn is still coming. When you're living with this identity, it also puts an onus on us for kinship with those who may be on the margins, who may be the small people under the boots of those who have more power and more influence. And I think about this year to come, there are things bubbling away, whether it's in this country, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in South America, and we have the opportunity as we follow a Christ who had to spend some of his formative years dislocated and marginalized, and who in Hebrews 13 calls the believers to come outside of the gates and who is an architect of a city which is not ours to recognize that our place should be with those who are the least powerful. Our place should be with the people who are the most pushed to the side and overlooked because this is the place that Christ entered the world into where other people looked for a military ruler, for someone to establish a kingdom, Christ repudiated it by his kingdom. And although we have the opportunity and the privilege to live in a country where we can worship freely, to live in a country where we are able to have so much, so much opportunity, we still have an identity 
following in the footsteps of these patriarchs and these prophets, following the footsteps of the incarnate and risen Christ as people who must understand that our physical location is not the most important factor of understanding our mission, but rather it's knowing that we are followers of the risen Christ. And this year that may move some of us to have to make difficult decisions. That may move some of us in the ways that we live our lives to recognize that Jesus Christ has claims on all that he has given to us. And yet, as I think about this message and I go back to Abraham, I think of someone who, although he lived in tents and he decamped and he put out campfires, although he was constantly on the move, that Abraham as a sojourner was someone who built wells, was someone who watered his community, was someone who added value to the neighbors that he lived with, was someone who could point to a, a better day, was someone who could hold the promise. And so of all the things you may be thinking about, and again, we'll explore in the next few weeks, your resolutions, your ideas for the new year, the things you want to do, the things you are praying about for God to achieve in your life, your hopes and your dreams for this congregation. I'm going to encourage you for this week to think what that might look like and how that might change if we think of ourselves as existing like Abraham as a sojourner with our eyes on a higher prize but being faithful to where God has called us right now in this place in Walla Walla, on this campus at this university. How might that instruct and speak into our lives? Amen.